Hello and welcome to the BGS English Department Revision Podcast. Um, I am Miss Yemenakis and today I am here with... Miss Thomas. Um, and we are going to be doing a um, podcast on um, a section, uh, an extract-based question of Act 1 um, of um, Journey's End. Um, just a couple of little bits and pieces before we get started properly. This, of course, is your drama paper. So it's a, a separate exam. It's just a 45-minute exam where you will have the choice of an extract-based question um, with a question after it or a whole text question. Um, the skills are very similar to the ones that you've already practised when you've done your extract-based questions um, on purple hibiscus. Um, so make sure that you um, find the extract in your copy of the play, that you know where it is, and you spend some time making some annotations before you start answering the question. So I'm going to hand over to Miss Thomas now, who's going to introduce the question and um, read the opening thesis statement for the essay. Okay, so the question is, how do you think Sheriff's writing conveys the tension below the surface in this conversation? And as Ms. Yamanakis mentions, it's the extract taken from quite early on in Act 1. Um, so the thesis statement is as follows. The extract takes place early on in the play in Act 1 as Raleigh arrives for the first time in the officer's dugout. And there's a stark contrast between the older and more experienced Osborne and the childlike Raleigh whose enthusiasm strikes us in this extract, um, his enthusiasm for his new adventure, which stands out amidst the claustrophobic misery of the setting. Though the two men address each other benignly uh, and politely, the muted references to the change in Stanup and the strain on his nerves, as well as Raleigh's own slightly nepotistic manoeuvres, create a sense of unease for the viewer. This exchange follows swiftly on from that between Hardy and Osborne, in which we hear of Stanup's drunkenness. And so everything that Raleigh says, all of his idealistic comments about Stanup are undercut by a cruel, dramatic irony. Um, yeah, and something we were talking about earlier that you might want to think about, you probably will have noticed this already, but at the opening um, act of the play, you tend to get dialogue between two characters. And as those characters switch over, obviously you're seeing slightly different aspects of their characters being revealed or slightly different aspects of um, attitudes to war. So it's worth kind of thinking about the pairing um, that you get um, okay, so the first um, point, and we here, like we have done in the podcasts for all of the other um, exams, what we do is we divide it essentially into three kind of topic sentences or paragraphs or so on, because we generally find that realistically in 45 minutes, that's about what you've got time to manage, and it gives you um, a real focus. So the first one that we've got here, and by the way, um, just to remind you that um, each of the podcasts comes with a downloadable sheet, which has the key vocabulary and the thesis statement and the conclusion and all the bullet point notes that we've made. So do take the time, maybe after you've listened to the podcast or do it before. Or maybe just press pause along. right now. Absolutely. If whatever. you haven't got it already. Um, okay, so the first point we've got for this essay, for our first um, paragraph, is the explicit contrast between Raleigh's naive enthusiasm and Osborne's patient experience in the extract. Mm. I mean, I think one of the things that is really noticeable about Raleigh is he, he's still treating this as though it's school, isn't he? He's, he's literally just come from school and yeah. he's still behaving as though he's about to go off and play a cricket match or yeah. a rugby match it's or something It's all a great like big that. adventure for him. 
Uh, and, um, and and that's the you know that was the reality for a lot of young men um, coming straight straight from school. Um, actually, I don't have the um, numbers at my fingertips, but the life expectancy of young new officers coming to the front line yeah, was, was the lowest. Was the lowest, and yeah. it was a matter of days, I think. Wasn't yeah, it? So, because these are field officers, so they are kind of lower ranking officers who would have, whose job was to go on the front line with the infantry troops. Unlike higher ranking officers who kind of held back and were in the boardrooms. And, yeah. And, and um, Sheriff himself fought in the First World War, so part of what he was trying to do in this play is kind of show um, really the horror of that experience. So he's, he's very young, he's very naive, he's very idealistic, um, and that contrast between him and Osborne um, is an important one. And of course, Osborne, who is a school teacher, we learn later on. And so that really plays up the contrast between the two characters. If, for example, Sheriff had had um, Raleigh walking into the dugout and encountering Hibbert or encountering Mason, we wouldn't have quite got that stark contrast between the different perspectives of the two characters. Yeah, absolutely. Because part of what um, Osborne's trying to do in this extra is to sort of let... Raleigh in gently and allow him to kind of acclimatise and also specifically obviously to try and prepare him for the fact that um, his idol stand-up is likely to have changed significantly in the time since he last saw him. Um, I think it's interesting um, just to talk here about the register, so the contrasting yeah. registers of the, two, of the two men and I think as a 21st century audience member, Raleigh's language is some of the most striking in the play. It's so um, schoolboyish and public schoolboyish yeah, as well. Schoolboyish. Um, and that I think that really hits home in this extract here. And he talks about things being splendid, being frightfully keen, frightfully surprised. I think the last thing he says before he goes on the when he's directed to do the raid on the German um, trench is that all oh, this is frightfully exciting. So all the way through, he's associated with this very childlike register. Yeah, and of course, later on in the play, when he comes back from the raid um, after mm. Osborne's death as well, you see that it has had an enormous impact on him and he can't quite cope with mm. what he perceives mm. to be the non-reaction of the others who've just learned how to protect mm. themselves, really, haven't they? But you're right. I mean, I think a bit like the humour in some places in this play, I think that's one of the things you have to tune into a little bit because the language is, is quite old-fashioned because it is the idiom of the sort of early 20th century, isn't it? Um, uh, I think you picked up on the name thing here as well, didn't you? Mm. Which is interesting because um, uh, Raleigh refers to um, Stanup as Dennis, which you know reminds us of their kind of relationship as schoolboys. And um, Osborne always refers to him as Stanup, which yeah, is kind very of reminded him. Yeah, uh, and I think that's his kind of gentle way of trying to remind him that um, we are in a different situation here and things are going to be different. Yeah, they have very different... It's funny, they're both institutional, institutionalised, aren't they? Both um, institutional settings, the one of the public school and the one of the military, but they contrast so directly here with, uh, with Raleigh being that very childish... Um, boy-like figure and then Osborne who is quite military even though he's not particularly militaristic like he's a very he's quite approachable isn't he he's likable but he frames everything in terms of the military so he says here rather than talking about Osborne for any of his kind of personal traits he calls him a fine company commander yeah, I mean, it's a bit like you would induct a new boy who's new yeah, to school. Yeah, He's doing the same thing, isn't he? Almost yeah. as though... Teaching the him the right language. I, I think another thing to think about as well is that, in a way, really, I think 
what we're seeing with Riley here is what Stanhope would have been like at the beginning mm-hmm. of the war because he's come from exactly the same background as Riley. They were friends. They've been in the same school. So you can sort of see what the impact of war has been. Um, do you think we should move on probably to our second yes. Um, paragraph? Yes. Okay, so the second paragraph, all the way through, and actually a lot of the time throughout the whole play, there's a lot of emphasis on things that can't be directly spoken about. And here we see it in the use of euphemism and also hesitations. There's a lot of broken sentences, a lot of kind of assumed um, information rather than things that are directly given. Um, All the way through the play, I think there's this idea of repressed information stuff that can't be openly spoken about. And here, I think that device, euphemism, hesitation, pause, indirect reference that contributes to this real sense of tension. The audience can tell that there's something mm. that isn't being explicitly spoken about. And that, that not only implies, as the question is asking, as the question is asking, the tension below the surface of the conversation, but it also contributes to this dramatic tension that the audience taps yeah. into. And, and I mean, you know, one of um, Sheriff's alternative titles was Suspense. I mean, this is a play mm. about waiting, isn't it? It all takes place unlike the newer film version, so be aware of that, inside the dugout, and we never see outside, and the references to war are, again, often quite indirect, Mm. aren't they, or they're couched in some kind of euphemism, which I think in some ways makes them even more poignant, because you know that at the beginning of this play, they're waiting for the the big German attack, so it's even more tense than normal. Um, And we absolutely see that here in this exchange between um, Raleigh and Osborne um, as well. Yeah, and it sort of comes in. So after Raleigh leaps into the dugout with his enthusiasm talking about the big fluke to have got into the same company and there's this quite quick paced exchange between Raleigh and Osborne um, once the subject changes to Raleigh's friendship with Stanup, we see Osborne kind of become a little bit more um, awkward perhaps and a bit more hesitant um, the, because he obviously knows the changes that Raleigh is going to see in stand-up and is reluctant maybe perhaps, to, I don't know, to... Yeah, and I think also he almost like he wants to like slow him down yeah. and give him a chance to kind of absorb the atmosphere and get ready for the changes. Um, which again, I think is the schoolmasterly, the kind of uncle um, part in him. And also we assume that Osborne, like stand-up before him, has seen, you know many, many young men, such as Raleigh, kind of passing through. It's just that this one has a personal connection to Stanhope, which obviously is dramatically significant in the play. Yeah, and I think the first moment, well, the first moment that I thought was striking is this pause that comes after Raleigh and Osborne talk about letters, because Raleigh says um, he doesn't say much in his letters, can we write often? Um, And then Osborne says, oh, yes, letters are collected every day, and there's a pause. And it seems possible that that pause is relating... Perhaps this kind of, the impl- implication is that perhaps Raleigh assumed that letters didn't easily get from the front back home. And here there's a sense that actually there's information that's been withheld that Stanhope has deliberately not sent home. So there's this emerging kind of like realisation on the part of Raleigh that actually things... that maybe he hasn't grasped the whole truth yeah. of the situation before. And I think also we know that as time has gone on, Stanhope tells Osborne later on that he's he's stopped going home and communicating Mm, with home mm -hmm, as much because mm. he he can't bear who he's become. I also wonder whether that pause is slightly there to kind of foreshadow the significance of the letters Mm. in the showdown between Osborne, um, sorry, between Raleigh and Stanhope later on as well, when Stanhope decides that censoring the letters is the solution to the information that might go to Yeah, the letters um, become a sort of motif, don't they, about this idea of control or information that Stanhope 
wants to have over well also it's interesting isn't it because when he when Stanhope actually sees the letter it's full of kind of praise for Stanhope mm. and how he's managing his his men and how they all love him whereas he's expecting it to be saying you know how terrible he looks and how he drinks like a fish and all these kinds of things so um there's that total lack of understanding there um I mean in that after that pause as well, I mean, he's back to the school bit, isn't he? You know, where he's talking about Osborne's trying to kind of, you know, again, yeah. you say he really underplays, he's a little bit quick-tempered, and we know that he's kind yeah. of very volatile, yeah. isn't he, at this stage? Yeah. And Raleigh immediately links that back to school of him, you know, getting annoyed with people who were smoking. So we're back to that kind of school scenario. Yeah, there's this kind of moment of real tension where you think, oh, it's possible that Raleigh's going to realise there's a lot of, oh... A lot of questions, some pauses, some broken sentences, and then it's almost like Raleigh when he laughs, because he suddenly he's suddenly got a, an opportunity to talk about the Dennis that he knows from school. So he laughs and he talks, yeah. "Oh yes, I know all about Dennis's temper." And it's, we're back to this kind of like. I think it just heightens that gap, doesn't it? As well, that in reality, there's there's nothing really that could prepare Raleigh for the reality of life in the trenches, mm. and in fact. You know the kind of um, propaganda machine back home, and public schools are kind of, in, you know, an implicit part mm, of this. Mm-hmm. It's actually all geared towards, you know, being patriotic and fighting for your com- country mm. and all of those kinds of things. I so. mean, I just think it's worth looking at the, the the three particular euphemisms that are used by Osborne. So he says it, it tells on a man rather badly, which yeah. is a striking understatement. Yes, he's a little bit quick-tempered. Yeah, and then. Um, You'll know it's only the strain, which is that phrase that comes up again and again yeah. when they talk about stand-up, it's the strain. On also, the in that same sentence with the strain, it says, um, his commander's come here for a long time, through all sorts of rotten times. Yeah. I mean, rotten times is, is such a euphemistic um, phrase, really, a kind of catch-all phrase for anything, whereas we know that you know he's seen the deaths of hundreds of his men mm. and um, his compatriots as well, so you're right. And that's... I mean, I don't know, how much do you think that is Osborne just trying to re- let Raleigh in gently, and how much do you think it is just the kind of general avoidance that happens in the discussions and in the dugout anyway, because none of them, if, if they really had to absorb what they were facing... It would be unbearable. Well, I think later on, when Osborne and Stanhope are talking, and that do you remember when they're envying Trotter and they're talking about... Oh, about his lack of imagination. Yeah. Because of... he's working class, so he has <laughs> yeah. no imagination. So he can't possibly perceive the deeper yes. um, experiences that they can. But I do think there's this sort of imp- implied sense that if you're to be able to cope in the trenches, which they believe that you have to, because both Stanhope and Osborne, I think, want... Like, they believe in their commitment to the war. Yes. They're not trying to get out of it. So, they're, they're, so they know that they have to cope. Um, and they seem to think that the only way to cope is to keep reality at bay. Yeah. And so I think, although some of it might be about, you know, care for Raleigh and wanting to kind of, like, usher and him some in of slowly, it's just But part some of it, I think, is, like, about yeah. that. That's the way that they... Absolutely. Them. I mean, it's there in all the conversations about food and the structures of the mealtimes. This isn't actually the very opening conversation between Osborne and Hardy where they're talking about the attacks and they're talking about whether they're getting whether there's stuff in their tea mm. do you remember so it's yeah. almost kind of keeping up this sort of jokey discussion of things that are obviously actually very serious as a way of um, coping shall we move on to the um, the last uh, point the last point which in this case and obviously these are just three points that we've chosen um, you could have chosen different things uh, and that's fine it's just being clear that you have you know three if you're a really fast writer and you know the plain side out and back to front, you might write more than three paragraphs and that's fine. 
Um, but the, the final one is, is the use of um, uh, dramatic irony to evoke unease um, in this extract. Um, um, and as you can see, if you look at um, point three on your sheets, it's the second main conversation about stand-up that takes place um, before the character himself enters. I mean, that's a technique that lots of playwrights mm. use, isn't it? That you're getting various sort of snapshots, both positive and negative, about stand-up before you actually meet him. Uh, and the difference in depiction between Hardy's attitude towards him, which is quite dismissive and quite mm, negative, isn't mm. it? Quite flippant. He only admires him because he can drink so much. Yes. Whereas Osborne, we know, is very attached to stand up and, and, and understands what he's going through and, and it, believes it, in him as a commander. Absolutely. Mm. Um, so that difference in depiction creates a sense of foreboding and irony and adds to the tension um, of the scene mm. here. Um, and I think there's so we, I start off here just by thinking about another layer of irony, which is there's an irony to Raleigh's naivety, and he he talks about his good luck. He says I can't remember what he says. He's frightfully lucky that he's been wasn't it a fluke, a great fluke. Yeah. Although um, we know he's actually engineered. It. He's engineered it exactly <laughs> through his uncle. And um, but that that idea that he sees himself as lucky, and we know I think even having even not having read the play, even not knowing what Raleigh's ultimate end is going to be, which is that he dies. Um, uh, he like we can sense that that luck is is yeah. very ironic. He he's, there's nothing lucky whatsoever. I mean, about he, this he is essentially a sacrificial lamb, isn't yeah. he? He kind of represents. Um, he's a sort of symbol, really, isn't he, of all those very young, effectively schoolboys mm. um, who, um, you know, willingly went off to fight and were actually looking forward to it, the sort of as an adventure. Um, and that's something, you know, you only have to go into the Great Hall and look at the boards up there, and there are names of, you know, boys from this school who went and fought in the First World who War. Who would have been well. so very, a, very similar. Yeah, so for an audience watching this in, in 1927, it would have been a very universal experience. They all would have known um, people who died. Mm. Um, there's also the irony in the way that he talks about Raleigh is still he's enamoured of this imagery of war, isn't he? Of the military cross, yes, um, and the new title that Stanhope has been given, and he he thinks this is all great. I, I think again, there's that development. It's almost as though it's just an extension of what happens at school. You know, your captain of cricket, yeah. your captain of rugby, or your head boy, or whatever it is, and those are the accolades you get at school. And now these are the accolades of war. It's as though one leads directly into the other, and they are obviously enormously. Um, different so yeah um, the, the anecdote um, about stand-up catching the chaps in a study which you've mm. kind of highlighted mm. here um, you talk about the motif of whiskey in that one um, and that obviously being important because we know right from the opening conversation don't we that this is you know he self-medicates basically yeah. doesn't he in order to kind of cope um, with the strain on his nerves and what he's been through. And like the food, it punctuates all of the drama yes, of the play. Absolutely. Um, and it, I suppose it sort of shows that, you know, that anecdote is a kind of light hearted one, doesn't it? But mm. it shows the sort of essential character of Stan. I mean, how it's kind of been warped really yeah. by um, his life in the front line. There's a, sort, there's a tragedy to it, isn't there? I mean, in some ways, and I think it's interesting because the, the film to me felt like it focused very much on Raleigh's perspective but for me the play is more about Stanhope I don't know whether yes, you agree with that I think so and Stanhope here he, he's almost his tragedy and we don't see it contained so much as we see the polish of Raleigh's enthusiasm wear off but Stanhope we get this sense of him as a young boy before he comes to the war and that's really his kind of like latent goodness mm. his her heroism he's a heroic character 
but he's been reduced to this, as you say, like self-medicating, yes. deeply traumatised man um, who witnesses I mean, terrible horror. Interestingly, at the end, in the scene um, where he's cradling Raleigh as he mm-hmm. dies, that kind of tenderness and... And he calls um, him... He calls him his name, which I can't remember now either. <laughs> he calls him by his first name. He calls him by his first name, yeah. So you sort of see that humanity is still there, but he just has to kind of protect himself against it. So he does sort of emerge at the end. Mm. Um, uh, Should we read the, Yes. Do you want to read yeah, the Shall con- I read the conclusion? Yeah. Okay, so the conclusion we have had is this extract appears superficially to be a light-hearted exchange between a youthful officer and his more experienced superior. But is this veneer of humour and enthusiasm that heightens a sense of underlying tension? Osborne's reserved character and his hesitant attempt to initiate Raleigh into the dynamics of the company throw the younger character's innocence and naivety into stark relief, and so suggest the play's focusing on the suffering and tragedy of the trenches. And it is, I mean, I think Sheriff's aim really was very similar to um, Wilfred Owen's aim, isn't it, to show the kind of pity mm. and horror um, of war. And actually both characters in the extract that we've just read end up dying. Um, as well, mm. which is not a very jolly way to end, but it's the truth. No, I, yeah. I do think also just to quickly mention it's. Um, I was tempted to read it almost like as an anti-war play, which I don't think it is. I think there's an admiration. Perhaps? I think there is an admiration. I think, I think one of the things contextually that you have to try and remember is that um, one of the frustrations that soldiers who fought in the war felt is that they they felt that the people back home didn't really know what it was actually mm, like. And this was one of the so, first plays exactly, that really so, showed that. So I don't think it's anti-war in that sense, but I think it's, it's Sheriff wanted to show reality. what those sacrifices were actually like and that kind of concern that when you come back home at the end of the war and people start kind of glamorising it, that he wanted people to actually see, a little bit like the First World War poets wanted people to see what, what it was actually like. Mm. Um, so we will leave you there.